spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Looks like Casper might not be the only friendly ghost in town. It's episode 280 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham and kind of making half reference to the fact that everyone in the world seems to be getting ready for Halloween already. Have you been in a store lately? The Halloween stuff is already out in full force. So I thought, you know, let's talk some ghosts. Let's talk Ghosted in L.A. with Cinna Grace from Boom Studios. Actually, when I was at San Diego Comic-Con this year, I got a rare opportunity to actually talk to Cinna Grace, who, of course, is the writer and creator of Ghosted in L.A., and Ryan Parrott, who's doing great things with Power Rangers right now at Boom Studios. He's been on the show in the past as well. He's also doing the ba- the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers crossover. So I talked to them together about their separate projects, but they started asking each other questions about stuff. It was really interesting. So I'm going to play a part of that interview for you actually this week, really focusing on Cinegrace and Ghosted in L.A., which comes out issue three, I should say on September the 11th. So not only that, going to recap some of the stuff that happened at D23 this past weekend. Also going to talk about, of course, the Mandalorian trailer and a whole bunch more stuff. But let's start things out with comics, of course. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm Magdalene Bisaggio, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Gotta love the sound it makes when you drag out the long box. How about when you hit that power button on the tablet? Or the laptop. I don't care what you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And we're going to start things out with a book that is coming back kind of. Maybe in name only. It's Batman Superman number one. The 2019 edition anyway. Joshua Williamson writing this one. Dave Marquez on the art. Alejandro Sanchez on the colors. And John J. Hill is going to be doing the lettering. Now... This does kind of rely heavily on the Batman Who Laughs maxi series that just happened. But I I will say this. You don't absolutely positively have to have read that to understand what's going on in these pages. So don't feel like you... I mean, you really should because it was good anyway. It's only seven issues. But don't feel like you absolutely have to before... You read this. It actually might make you want to go backwards. So basically, Batman's calling Superman in to help what seems like a minor crime at the time, which involves Batman who laughed. But with him, you know, there's always more to it than that. Now, all the while, they kind of wonder what would happen if one of them turned, you know, turned to the bad side and how they would be stopped. So there's really a push and pull, and it's really an interesting dynamic towards their relationship as a whole, which, which again, is why I don't think you need to read the Batman Who Laughs to appreciate this. Now, once they actually find the Batman Who Laughs Batcave, which they, which we do get to see, they make a really stunning discovery. And, you know, these are spoiler-filled reviews when I talk about, spoiler-free reviews when I talk about comics. So, I'm not going to spoil that for you, but they actually find out just how huge the scope of the plan the Batman Who Laughs has and it's pretty epic as a matter of fact the book actually ends with us finding out 
where those plans are and if they're in motion or not. And I got to tell you, it actually tells you what's going to be happening in the second issue. Obviously, it's pretty obvious once you see that final page. And man, it is a big one. It's one of those I have to grab the second issue now kind of moments. The cover of this book actually reminds me why I love this book when Greg Pak and Jai Lee were doing it all those years ago when they teamed up for it. Even though there's still continuity involved in this particular one, it still feels like it's different from the rest of the Batman and Superman books that are out there, and there are plenty. So, I mean, there are a couple of very shocking moments in this very first issue alone that really gets highlighted by the art by Dave Marquez. I mean, those moments really matter in a book, and when you have a great artist that brings them them to life, it just makes it jump out even more, especially that final page that I'm talking about. You could do that, and it would still matter, but without a great artist to bring that out, it doesn't matter as much. And that was always one of the strengths to me about the Batman-Superman title in the first place. I'm glad to see that that's kind of something that's continuing in this new incarnation. This book really has... Like that big event feel without all of the hype that leads up to something like that. So I love that it goes there and it takes some very interesting turns. This is a pull for me. I cannot wait already to get this second issue. This is another book that really, really intrigued me when I first saw it. And it is the return of Dr. Mirage for an ongoing series from Valiant Entertainment, Magdalene Visaggio doing the writing, Nick Robles on the art, Jordi Belair on the colors, and Dave Sharp on the letters. Now, you just hear that creative team and you go, wow, that's a really strong team. And I'm not saying that Dr. Mirage isn't an important character, but you get a team like that together for a character like Dr. Mirage, who isn't like the biggest character in comics. And you know that Valiant is really pulling out all the stops for this book. Now, Shan has lost her connection to the dead side. And and again, this is spoiler-free, but that is something that was in the descriptions. That's not like this huge spoiler or anything. She can't see her husband anymore, any other ghosts for that matter, or any other dead people. So it kind of raises an interesting point about her being alone for the first time in almost her entire life. Think about having an always constant presence in your life from when you were like a toddler all the way through adulthood, and then all of a sudden, gone. Now, albeit unconventional, but still, literally a constant presence is not there for her anymore. So, of course, she wants to undo it, get it back to the way it was, but that leads to some unexpected results and some unexpected company. Now, it's really hard to talk too much more about this from here without spoiling anything, but this does what it does set up actually is something that's kind of a matter of trust and existentialism, and it's really, really intriguing. I mean, whether what Shan is being told is true or not by what's going on in this story that I can't spoil for you, the journey to find out should be one hell of an interesting ride. I'm really interested to see where this goes. So whether or not she's being fed a line of BS or the truth, or she's actually being told the truth, either way the story works out good for me. And that's not an easy thing to pull off because you, you want that level of mystery in a book, 
like this. You kind of feel like you think you know what's going on, but maybe you're not. And that's that's comics sometimes, right? And that's one of the reasons why we love reading them. So to me, this is one of those rare instances, though, where I'm like, either way this decides to turn, I'm good because the route to get there should be pretty interesting. And while the art is very good in this book, you have to give major props to Jordi Belair's colors. And when you read this book, you'll totally understand that. Maybe you've even seen some of the preview pages on Valiant's website. You absolutely understand it. And you understand why Jordi is an Eisner winner. This is the kind of stuff you need to bring out a book just like this. You can't do this book without a good colorist. So why not go out there and get the best colorist you can get and let things pop from there? This is like bringing Legion into the Valiant universe as far as the the, the television series of Legion. You bring that in, and that's kind of on a very different level what you're getting with Dr. Mirage. And how could you do that without a good colorist? And a good artist, by the way, Nick Robles, again, fantastic job. Not saying Nick doesn't do a fantastic job here. But without Jordy, you really can't do this. You absolutely positively can't pull this off. You see a book like this, and you completely understand how Jordy Belair is an Eisner winner. And I, I love ghost stories anyway. And this isn't necessarily a ghost story, but it's that connection. And even talking about the dead side, which has been a big part of a lot of, a lot of books that Valiant has been doing lately. And I think this is going to be a really, really cool story. So I can't wait to read more Dr. Mirage. Number one's a pull for me. Let's see if the rest of the series is the same way as well. I kind of have a feeling that it's going to be. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. What are we going to be reviewing for this week in Geektainment? Did something different last week. Will it be that way again this week? Let's make it a surprise next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Brianne Howie from Fox's The Passage, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I know I've been talking about it a lot, but damn it, I am not done. So let's talk about season one of Carnival Row, finally out, by the way, on Amazon Prime Video. So as you, as of you listening to this, you might already be done streaming it. You might have binge-watched it over the Liberty weekend, but just in case... I am going to go spoiler-free here. And I know, I know you might think, oh, you've already done that with the first episode. Come on. But this time, I'm going to talk about the entire season, not just the first episode. And I got to tell you, when you look at this show and the trailers that have come out and the character descriptions and stuff like that, I mean, you could think that it's about a certain thing, right? You could think that it would be about refugees. You could think it could just be about a love story. You could just think it could be about these mystical creatures and what's going on. But the great thing about Carnival Row is is that it's so many things that are combined so well that it really blows my mind how they did this without it being cluttered. Because, yes, there is a major love story between Philo and Vignette. And it's tragic, and it's amazing, and the way it's weaved together is so amazing and perfect in one season that it's 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 just incredibly well done. I, I'm really have a hard time to even put it into words, and and there are so many other factors there. 
outside of that. And then when you get to see, and I believe it's episode three, correct me if I'm wrong on that, that's your flashback episode where you find out how they meet, how they fall in love, and you find out something major about Philo's character that really, really explains why he is the way he is, not just in the first couple of episodes, but throughout the rest of this first season as well, and why he cares so much about what he does for a living as well, and why he is a little bit more of a tortured soul than than you might expect. So that really goes a long way into explaining his character, but does it excuse his behavior is, is how it's has, how it relates to vignette. You might've seen the clip that I released on uh, the down and nerdy podcast, YouTube page. that was provided by Amazon studios about how she confronts him about leaving her. Well, you get to find out why that happens and who is involved in that too, by the way, another very, very familiar name and friend. This really isn't a spoiler. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about this. Tourmaline, who's a very, very close fae friend of Vignette. Actually, there's a little bit more to it than that, but we will talk. That's something, again, you'll find out as you watch the show. So she's very much a part of this story as well. And and maybe you your feelings change about her one way or another based on the things that you find out as the season progresses and as you find out that information in the early part of the season, maybe it doesn't, maybe you find a place to where you place blame. Maybe you don't, maybe you just root for these two to someday get back to where they were because it just seems like that's the right thing to do. Right. But then Philo has his own story at some point during the season where he's got his case that he needs to solve. Vignette has her own part of her story, which is so much a story of survival, too, by the way. And you look at how strong Cara Delevingne is in this season. I said this about the first episode, but it it just keeps proving itself throughout each episode after that and how amazing she is and how strong she is. Because Vignette is someone that could it's it's a character that could have been broken so many times in her past and in her present, really could have been broken, but just finds a way to fight through it. And you know, there and there's a certain point where even the strongest of us breaks down at sometimes, right? But that's part of that's also part of being strong, I think, is that every now and then you just break down because there's certain things that that certain buttons get pushed or certain things that happen and it's just too much and you've got to let that emotion out somewhere. So her story to me and the way it plays out and just the character vignette in general is so, I, I mean, maybe inspiring is a cliche word, but it's someone that you watch with, I watch with this utter fascination of not only how she is who she is, but how, but how she presents herself and how she carries herself and how just incredible she is in each and every episode of this show. Past, again, past and present. Because when you meet Vignette, she's already a badass in the past. This is not something that just sort of happened because of the tragedy that happened to her in this war when the Burgishmen meet the Fae. That is, and, and she meets Philo. That's not when it happened. She's already there. She's already a badass before that anyway. But then you see that sort of transform a little bit and sort of morph, and it's just really, really amazing how that's done. 
And yes, there is also a class system involved here. And there is a, you have these creatures, you have the, the, the pucks and the critch that they call them and the fae and these different creatures that are now being integrated into the society of humans. And humans aren't sure exactly how to take that. And some of them have very strong feelings about it. And some of it's very, very much not cool. And then you've got, you know, the upper class society who wants nothing to do with quote unquote their kind. And I gotta tell you, First of all, Imogen Spurnrose, who's played by Tamsin Merchant, she's one of those characters, she's so conniving, right? And, and you kind of, you, you almost feel bad for her for like a second at one point during the show. Then you don't really feel bad for her at all at this point. And she's just so manipulative and cunning. She's like the kind of person with money that scares you the most because you don't know what she's really capable of. Because she she tries to hide it behind this like naivety sort of thing, so you gotta kind of watch her more than most. And I th- I felt that so interesting, and compelling about her character. And by the way, her brother, who's a complete moron on the show, by the way, Ezra Spurnrose, who's played by Andrew Gower. Now the, here's the thing about Andrew Gower, and this is going to be a little bit of a tangent on my part, but just follow me on this. Now, if you remember, if you're an Outlander fan. Andrew Gower was also on Outlander. He played Prince Charles Edward Stewart, and he would always say, mark me, mark me. And he was the guy with like the terrible plan for the Jacobite army in Outlander. And again, I don't want to get too much of a tangent here, but he also kind of makes a couple huge mistakes in Carnival Row with his family and how that whole thing is going. And there's a scene where Imogen's trying to trying to turn their fortunes around, I guess you could say, in, in a certain stance. And she is talking to the 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 puck that has bought... By the way, ball or move, by the way, by David Gossi's character of Agrius, who buys the biggest house in the richest neighborhood as a puck with a human servant and just waltzes in there sight unseen. Nobody knows what to expect. And now Imogen started trying to play him, right? But he isn't having it. So long story short, he says at one point, he says to her, mark me, Imogen, mark me. And I'm like, you stole his line. You stole dude's line. You stole Andrew Gower's line because I feel like that's that's his at this point. I know this is a ridiculous tangent on my part, but if you watch both shows and if you were as aggravated with Andrew Gower's characters in both shows as I was, that was just kind of a moment for me. Where I'm like, really? You're going to use that? That's the verbiage you're going to use. Okay. And I'm not even saying that that's an Outlander Easter egg in any way. I just thought that that was a completely unnecessary tangent on my part. But it was fun for me. So if, if, you, if you watch both shows, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. But it's that class system manipulation, right? That I really, really love. And you see that. And that's not something that you necessarily get to see play out as is prominent in our current society, right? Like, you know it's there, but it's not as out there as it is in, in, in a system like this in, in, in a show like Carnival Row, where it's completely obvious, just like it was in the time of Kings and Queens, right? That was just something that was so prominent, and that still exists in a prominent way, but it's it's like the one thing in our society that's not as outward as it was as it was back then whereas there's so much stuff in our society now that's that's just out there 
and and but this for some reason isn't and I think that Carnival Row paints an interesting spotlight on that it's like why are we not talking about this now sort of thing so I think that that's that's part of it too and then you've got the refugee story and how they're treated you've also got this monster by the way that's 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 terrorizing the fey folk and Philo's trying to figure out what's going on there and then you also have the political by the way aspect of everything that's going on and you've got the chancellor who's trying to hold on to his power and there's somebody that is very much trying to unseat him from that power and who that is by the way i did not see coming this breakspear family is very interesting let's just say that right now but 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 what happens with them I did not see that coming, and I wasn't sure where it was going to go until the season played out a little bit more. And and, and I got to tell you, it's dark, man. It is really, really dark. And it was it was one of the cool it was one of the cool surprises for me of the show that they let that play out the way it is. And then there's a group that that vignette gets involved with as well. That's that, that's really really hardcore, and that has a lot to change for her story. But my main theme that I want to go back to here about Carnival Row is, is that it's a show about not a specific thing. It's a show about so many different things that somehow all comes together to make this beautiful story that they call Carnival Row. That it's, it just is able to work so many issues in society from not just back then, but to put it in the perspective of how things are maybe today and how things might be seen today, put in the context of a show like this and dealt with all in one complete show where everything sort of works together on its own. And again, I, I've said this before about certain things, but that when when you have separate stories and you're taking me off, like, like maybe you're really enjoying Philo's story, but we also have to talk about Imogen's story as well. I don't get upset by being taken away from one story to go to another because they all have their own interesting aspects and it all kind of fits into the larger scheme of what's going on in Carnival Row. And it also plays to the theme of the society itself and how it got from the Burgish and the Fae get along, getting along so well and everything going so smoothly to where things are now. How did we get to the point where we are now? Because I think in society, when you reach a point where you feel like things are not right, the question, you know, it eventually comes up of, well, how did we get there? And you try to trace that back. And Carnival Row actually, is doing, actually does that. It's like, well, how did we get here? Okay, well, here's maybe how we got there. Maybe not a definitive answer, but here's a little peek into how things might have gone the way they're gone, and here's the way things are now, and who's willing to change these things and who isn't, and who's willing to take certain risks and who isn't, and what are those consequences. And those are some of the main things that I loved about Carnival Row. I'm already excited. It's got a, It's already announced for a season two. Well, well-deserved. Make sure you are binge-watching Carnival Row on Amazon Prime Video. If you haven't started watching it already, you will not be sorry if you start watching it now. And hey, watch it again. I certainly know I'm going to be doing that. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Season 1 of Carnival Row from Amazon Prime Video. Watch it and get the prequel comics too, by the way, from Comixology because they're free and they're awesome. Coming up next, got some nerd news to talk about. We'll even do some D23 stuff.
on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sierra Nay, and I play Hawk Girl on DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Going to take you back to D23 a little bit. It's time for nerd news. It was kind of a slow news week anyway, so I thought I actually would go back and talk about some of the stuff that happened at D23 Expo last weekend from Disney, and that means a lot of Marvel stuff, a lot of Star Wars stuff. And let's start actually with the trailers. And I want to start with The Mandalorian because I think that might be the most anticipated of anything Star Wars related anyway. And I know that's kind of heavy-handed to say when you get Rise of Skywalker coming out. But to, the reason I say Mandalorian's a little bit more anticipated is because we kind of know what to expect thematically from Rise of Skywalker, don't we? We, we kind of know this the third part of the trilogy, so it's not like this is something that's going to come out and shock us and, and we don't really know what to expect. We at least have some idea of what to expect. With The Mandalorian, we really had no idea what to expect until we got this teaser. And and I'm not I'm still not really sure we know what to expect. But what what we are going to get is it's definitely going to be very bounty bounty hunter heavy. It's it's got this real western feel to it, doesn't it? And that's not something that I'm used to from a Star Wars universe. Maybe I'm the only one that feels that way, but it feels like this gritty western type thing, right? But but with a bounty hunter vibe at the same time. And what I loved about this trailer right off the get was the stormtrooper helmets on stakes, right? And to me, you want to, you're starting off your trailer with that. And to me, visually, what that tells me is, you know, that thing you remember about Star Wars, that's dead now. We're doing this. And it's going to be different. That's what that says to me. To me, I could be reading way too much into a, what, five-second part of this trailer. But what I, what that says to me is, this is us getting ready to do something different now. And hopefully you're going to be on board with it. We get a lot of the cool visuals, right? You know, we get to see some of the bounty hunters. We've already seen the Mandalorian. We get a look at Carl Weathers. We get a look at Gina Carano and some of the other characters. But they're just brief looks. And, you know, and you get a couple lines here and there. But you get to see how on the outer edges of the galaxy this place really is that the Mandalorian's going to be taking place in. So I think if nothing else, this showed us that this is going to be different from what we're used to from Star Wars. And I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. I think that's something that we could certainly use at this point. But moving on from that, yeah, let's talk about the Star Wars Rise of the Skywalker footage, sizzle reel, whatever you want to call it. That was shown at D23 because it seems like the only thing anyone wants to talk about is Dark Ray and the lightsaber that bends or spins or whatever you want to call it and what's going on there. And there's been a lot of theories out on Twitter. By the way, theories are theories. Can we just get that out of the way now? And that it's okay to have a theory. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. I see people get really mad about theories like, like there was one... And I can't remember who started it, by the way, so I apologize for, for not giving necessarily proper credit because this could have been started by anybody, actually. And that's that, that Palpatine is actually Rey's father and it's Kylo that's going to have to rise up to stop her, which would be interesting. I mean, that would certainly be an interesting theory, but it could be that this whole Dark Ray thing 
is just a force dream or it's some sort of projection of what could happen should she go a certain way. It's not like this is something that we haven't seen in Star Wars before. Okay, so it's again, it, it feels like we're we're doing something a little different, but not reinventing the wheel here with Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker. And and I'm really curious to see how it ends. It seems like the cast is certainly excited about it from what they talked about at D23. And I'm not going to go ad nauseum through what they said, but everybody seems to be really excited about the ending and thinks that fans are going to be as well. You've got the red eyed C-3PO and I've, I even said, I've said this before and I'll say it again. If this is where C-3PO just finally loses it and picks up a weapon and starts just fighting for the cause, like hardcore fighting for the cause, I think that would be awesome. I would cheer for that. Absolutely. I, I think that it's been a long time coming for C-3PO. You know, you think he's the scared one all the time, and then all of a sudden, he's like, you know what? No, not this time. Not going to do it. I'm actually going to stand up and fight. I think that would be really, really neat. But, and and I, I understand that maybe there's some fans that are, you know, they're, you're done with the Skywalker saga. You don't want to see any more, and you, you don't care necessarily, and you want the Mandalorian more than this, and you're going to get Mandalorian before this. I totally understand that, okay? I totally understand the fatigue with this story, but you can't dump on people that are excited about it, first of all. And second of all, there are some of us who want to see, right, wrong, or indifferent, how this story actually is going to end. And if this is the end, how does it end? And what does it mean for the new characters that were introduced in this saga? Is this something that they want to continue with? So... I don't necessarily think that this footage did anything one way or the other to move the needle as to the excitement or disappointment of Rise of Skywalker. I think this is still a wait-and-see type of deal, and I'm not sure anything that they could put out in a trailer that would really change anybody's minds at this point. I think minds are made up until the movie actually comes out. Here's something that I wanted to talk about only, well, not for a couple of different reasons, and that's the final trailer for the Joker movie that's going to be coming out here in a couple uh, in a few weeks here in October. First of all, I cannot freaking wait for this movie. I think Joaquin Phoenix is going to be fantastic, and every trailer that we get shows me that. You've got Zazie Beetz. We actually get to see her a little bit. Well, one thing I really love that this trailer highlighted more than others is how Arthur which is his name in the movie before he's Joker, is getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And there's always the argument of, does does Batman create the Joker? Is Batman responsible for the creation of the greatest villains that he has to face? That's always a debate among fans, right? Well, if Batman's really not going to be a part of this movie, and it doesn't seem like he is, if at all, this could be our, what if Batman has nothing to do with it? What if Batman isn't the problem? What if the Joker just gets pushed to the point of this is how I became the villain that I am? And it's not necessarily because of the hero that goes against me or the anti-hero, however you want to describe Batman. Let's not even get into that debate right now. But to me, this movie's saying, what if it happened this way? And I love that about it already. We get to see how, you know, Robert De Niro pushes him a little bit. We even get to see how the therapist that Arthur sees kind of pushes him a little bit into the direction of nobody's paying attention to me. And then once he starts getting that attention, negative as it may be, 
he starts to thrive on that. And and I'm not saying that that's how the creation happens. I haven't seen the movie yet. I can't judge it until I see it. But I love the fact that it looks like we're looking at a different angle of how this could have actually happened with maybe winks and nods to killing joke here and there. But there's one thing I really want to talk about. And I, I mentioned something about this on Twitter too, as a matter of fact. I understand there's excitement here. I can't wait to see this movie either. I think it's going to be fantastic. I think Joaquin Phoenix is going to be fantastic. But can we not use the O word because of trailers? We can't talk about Oscars, guys. We can't. We cannot start talking about giving out trophies for trailers, okay? If you want to have a trailer awards, fine. Let's do that. We have no idea how this movie's really going to be based on several two-and-a-half-minute trailers or one-minute teasers or 30-second teasers or photos. We can't possibly know. Yes, it looks like Joaquin Phoenix is going to be great, and there's going to be some other great performances as well. And maybe this is that comic book movie that finally gets nominated and wins Best Picture. And we have Joaquin Phoenix getting nominated and winning Best Actor for playing the Joker. These are things that, yeah, could happen, but that could happen in a lot of other cases too because we haven't seen it yet. Stop. Stop. Let's see movies before we judge them. Okay, you cannot say that a movie was awful if you didn't see it. I'm sorry. You just can't. You also can't say a movie was great or a performance was great if you didn't see it. Let's watch things, then judge them. That's the order that this is supposed to go in. I understand we are an instant gratification 2019 social media society now, but there are certain carts that just cannot be put before the horse, and that's my old man saying that I'm going to drop in here before we move on. Let's talk about some more D23 stuff, and I'm going to kind of go a little bit, and let's talk about The Mandalorian first, because there was one story that was really, really interesting that sort of dropped, and it had to do with Ming-Na Wen, who received an award at D23, and before we even started talking about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., we find out that Ming-Na Wen is joining the cast of The Mandalorian in a mysterious role. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean she's going to be playing a character that we know at all. She might not be playing anybody that we know, period. But there you still want to keep who she's going to be playing under wraps, and I'm okay with that. And after seeing the trailer and how gritty it is, and how and just she just fits the vibe of this of this of this show to me. I really, really think that she's gonna fit in well. And it's really cool to see her move off something like Agents of Shield and go into the Star Wars universe with the Mandalorian. So if you're going to start from scratch and you're going to start, you know, doing something a little bit new, getting somebody like Ming-Na Wen on your side, yeah, I think that that's a really good call. So I'm glad that they decided to do that. Of course, we've got the Obi-Wan Kenobi series that has been confirmed as well from the Star Wars universe. universe. Yes, Ewan McGregor is going to be back. And we just found out actually from Collider that as far as timelines go, this is going to take place eight years after Revenge of the Sith. So we we assume that, you know, Obi-Wan's had plenty of time to dwell on the fact that you were supposed to be the chosen one and you weren't, and he cuts Anakin to pieces and you know how that ends. So he's had plenty of time to dwell on that and, and could this be about, you know, his exile and stuff like that or where, where he was going, what he was doing, how that sort of transpired. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more to it than that because, you know, 
just him trying to find a good hiding spot for himself is probably not an interesting premise for a show. So I, I, I just think that that's, it's really interesting to set it in that timeline, but I actually think that eight years is a good amount to be able to, to, to go. And I mean, Ewan McGregor was a really bright spot of those prequels. So having Kenobi, a star Wars story, on Disney plus as a series, I think it's going to be really, really cool. It looks like filming's going to start, not, not going to start until 2020. So I, you know, we're certainly not going to get this before 2021. I wouldn't think. And there, there, there are timelines that were kind of released at D 23, but not completely released. But one thing that we do know, if you want to switch to the Marvel realm, is that there were some more Disney Plus series that were announced. We already have the laundry list of series that are going to be coming, like WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier. Well, apparently, after all that's done, and at the tail end of Phase 4, we're going to be getting a She-Hulk series, we're going to get a Moon Knight series, and we're finally going to get... A Miss Marvel series. Yes, Kamala Khan is finally going to be joining the MCU. And can I tell you how great I think it is that it's going to be a series instead of a movie? And I'm not saying that because I don't think that Miss Marvel can carry her, her own movie. I absolutely think she can. I think this is a great opportunity to dive deeper into her story and get fans to really love and appreciate this character more because you've got more time, you've got more episodes. They're going to stretch this thing out. looks like Disney Plus isn't going to release all episodes at once. They're going to do the weekly thing like DC Universe has been doing with Titans and Doom Patrol and stuff like that. And by the way, I have no problem with that. But when The Hollywood Reporter tells me that Bashi K. Ali is going to be writing this series and being the showrunner, I think that that's a great call. I really, really hope we get Squirrel Girl in here at some point so we have that BFF relationship that we get from Marvel Rising, I think that would be really, really cool. I'm not saying that she has to be like a sidekick of the show or a part of the show, a big part. Just give me like an episode or even like towards the tail end of the series. Introduce that. I think that could be really, really neat. But I think that you taking the time to tell her story the right way and, and to really be able to dive deeper into it, I think that that's a great decision that was made on their part to go ahead and do that. But and, and as far as Moon Knight is concerned, same thing. This is a really complicated, multi-personality type of character that you, you really cannot necessarily get fans to understand the story of in just one movie. I mean, you'd have to do so much laying the groundwork in a movie that by the time the movie was over, you really don't get a chance to do anything. You, it, It's not like... A character like Venom, where you can kind of jump right in because you you sort of get the premise already, right? With a character like Moon Knight, you've got to you've got to set the stage because the casual fan is not going to know who Moon Knight is and the complicated part about his story. And I really don't want to get into who might play him and casting and all that stuff. All I'm saying is, again, I think this is a good choice for a series. As far as She-Hulk goes, this is one I actually thought would end up on ABC that that female-led. Marvel series that was that's supposedly being worked on for ABC, which we heard nothing about at D23, which I thought was very interesting. Again, remember I said, don't be so sure about that one. Let's let that one just kind of hang out a little bit. Not sure that's actually going to happen. So again, I want to keep my eye on that. But it'll be interesting to see how much of her origin is going to be tied to Bruce Banner, Banner and if we will see Mark Ruffalo at least make some sort of appearance 
on the show or if he'll just be alluded to. I'm not saying he's got to be a huge part of it, but I mean, her origin kind of tied to that a little bit, right? So I, I think it would be neat to at least make that a part of it. And I think bringing She-Hulk into the MCU is a great call anyway. I can't wait to see what they do with casting on She-Hulk and exactly who they're going to get. I think that actually a lot of these roles you might see go to some unknowns only because you're spending so much money on your Marvel Studios characters anyway with some of these other shows. I know it's Disney and I know they've got a ton of money, but I don't know how much of it they're going to want to keep spending on a lot of these other series. So unless they've got a really, really good feeling about some of these I think we might see some lesser-known names that are going to be attached to this, and I don't think we'll see even one of these until at least 2022, just because of the huge schedule that they've already got in here. I want to work some of this stuff in really quickly. We've got Black Panther 2 that is going to be coming out. It looks like that has been confirmed for May 6th of 2022. Speaking of 2022, Ryan Coogler is going to be back. So the way I see it, we've got at least a year for Marvel to figure out, the, figure out the whole Namor thing because I want that Atlantean-Wakandan battle. I need it. I think that would be a perfect thing to do for Black Panther 2. But again, we've got the whole It's Connected thing in the cinematic universe. And how does that fit in? Can you do that? I think you can. And I really hope they figure the, the Namor thing out. Just, I mean, just from a comic book fan standpoint alone. I really, really want to see that and I hope that they get a chance to do it as far as Eternals is concerned we got a little bit of news there we know that that's going to be coming out November 6th on 2020 and we have we got a first look at some of the costumes and they look pretty darn good to me I'm not going to dive into all of them because quite frankly there's a lot Kit Harrington from Game of Thrones fame that's right Jon Snow is coming to the MCU he's going to be playing Black Knight in Eternals which I mean really makes sense and I mean he gets to be reunited with brother Rob right from Game of Thrones, so that'd be pretty cool to see them sharing the screen again together. I still think that I'm not completely sold that Eternals is going to be a huge hit just based on the names that are involved in it. I still think it's a little bit of a gamble, but again, you throw that Marvel Studios logo on stuff, and sometimes it just doesn't matter. With all the stuff that happened with D23, I do want to get one quick DC movie story in, and I think it's interesting because... Fans have been waiting for this name to join the DC Universe in live action in a long, for a long time, and now you finally got Nathan Fillion, according to Deadline, being cast in James Gunn's Suicide Squad movie. By the way, James Gunn said this is not Suicide Squad 2, so I'm not going to call it that anymore. So James, just tell us what we're supposed to call it. I'll just call it the Suicide Squad movie from James Gunn from here on out. But here's the deal. Again, this is another one of those mystery role type things and nap the fan speculation has been running rampant i know you want him to play hal jordan i know you do totally get it not saying i don't want him to play hal jordan i think that that would be great i also don't necessarily think that that's going to happen the other thing is he could be booster gold he could easily be Booster Gold in this movie. We know so little about Suicide Squad from James Gunn that there's no possible way to know who Fillion's going to be playing. I, and would would Green Lantern even make sense in this movie that's going to have Polka Dot Man and Rat Catcher and, and King Shark in it? I don't know. 
that he would make sense. I have no clue what this is going to be about, what the direction is going to be. We're not even sure exactly who's going to be returning. I mean, we know that we've, we we do have Joel Kinnaman's going to be back as Rick Flagg, Jai Courtney is Captain Boomerang, Viola Davis, and it certainly seems like Margot Robbie is going to be back as well. So we know that, but at the same time, as far as villains are concerned, a whole bunch of other things, we just don't know. So we're very much in a wait-and-see approach. There's still nothing wrong with the fact that Nathan Fillion is going to be in this movie. And we don't know the fact that we don't know who he's going to play is either going to be one of two things. It's going to be a huge, huge deal or a tremendous cameo-style letdown. Remember when we found out that Joe Manganiello was going to be playing Deathstroke? That ended up kind of just being a cameo thing just to introduce the character. And where is that now? So I'm going to hold off being excited about this until I know a little bit more about what's going on and when we're going to get that information. Who knows? It might not even be until could be a while. So I, yeah, I'm going to hold off on this and see what happens. That's going to do for nerd news up next. Going to talk to Cinna Grace about ghosted in LA and a little bit of an appearance from Ryan Parrott as well. We'll talk to them next on the down and nerdy podcast. Hi, this is a uh, rioter Ryan Parrott and you're listening to the down and nerdy podcast. San Diego Comic-Con 2019, the 50th anniversary of San Diego Comic-Con. As a matter of fact, I can't think of a better way to celebrate than talking about some great books from Boom Studios, Boombox, and the other thousand imprints that they might have. And we just happen to have Cena Grace and Ryan Parrott both joining me at the same time, gentlemen. Hey, hi. Hey, hey. <laughs> so this is interesting, and you talk to both of you at the same time, and you've both got some great things going on right now. Cena, let's start with you, Ghosted in L.A. You already have the first issue out. What's the uh, response been like for that first issue so far? I'm like, I'm still waiting for the ball to drop, because everyone's like, I liked it, which is scary when you're doing a book that feels like you're just telling the story you want to tell and like not worrying about the reader because I have the best editor and one of the best editors in the world Shannon Waters on it and she's really given me a lot of freedom to just basically kind of carve out a narrative that that is again speaking to kind of like my soul so it's been great people really like it it's a book about a young girl who moves to LA and is trying to find herself and define herself all while living in an apartment complex that is uh, housed entirely by ghosts <laughs> with Ghosted in LA which I reviewed on the show not too long ago and loved it one of the things that drew to me the most was the character of Daphne she's like kind of not necessarily a free spirit but like she wants to be a free spirit more talk about her a little bit yeah I mean basically like someone was like asking me like what about her is like you and I was like nothing like I've always known what I wanted to do I've always wanted to be in comic books and you know I knock on wood I think it worked out for me um, and then also just yeah like I'm from Los Angeles so it was sort of as a writer putting myself in, un- in an uncomfortable position of like how do I challenge myself to write someone who is on a quest for self-discovery um, but yeah she's this she's this awesome person who uh, like anything is possible for her and she just kind of has to figure it out Um, and what's great about having these ghosts is she's kind of uh, living with these sort of metaphors for like what could happen to you like if you do make the right or wrong decision or if you do double down on this or that and so um, I don't know I just like really like her and I, I wanted to create this character that was 
not so archetypal, very complicated, um, but earnest. I love earnest characters, and, and Daphne is very that. So it's just been great to kind of do a coming-of-age story that I hadn't quite seen in pop culture, and I... And I, you know, and it's not, yeah, like, I like her because she's not quite, like, she's not a good girl. Like, I think in the first issue, she literally implies that she's, like, you know, she's in a sexual relationship with her now ex-boyfriend. And, and at boom, they're like, yeah, like, she's 18. Like, duh, she's most likely having, you know, consensual sex. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I really wanted to make this character kind of look and feel like people I knew in college and I wanted it to you were talking about this earlier in a previous Ryan and I are like we're on an interview kind of stampede today it's really fun press junket Um, but it's 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 great to kind of give flesh to friendships and relationships that I had in high school that I haven't seen in pop culture like I think especially with uh, you know 18 year old girls and their BFFs and their boyfriends, there's always just sort of a, a rhythm, and I didn't want to do that. I, I kind of wanted to, like, and I also didn't want to do a Betty and Veronica thing, and so I'm just kind of trying to create, you know, a, I'm just trying to add to the, to the, you know, tapestry of stories out there. I remember when you pitched me the book, you were like, oh, it's Melrose Place with ghosts. I was like, that's fucking genius. <laughs> Sorry if you can't swear, but that was... No, my... you can. <laughs> Feel free. Yeah, I just thought that was the best idea, because, like, I automatically kind of knew the tone you wanted. It was like a contemporary version of, of the fact that those people were not perfect and that those, they made a lot of mistakes and stuff like that. I don't know if I'm, I don't want to put yeah, words in your no, mouth, but no, that's yeah. what I really liked about oh it. Oh my god, Ryan's like such a better hype man than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should just hype each other's books. Yeah. That's what we're here oh for. We definitely want, don't want to give away too much about Ghosted Nelly either, but I know the second issue comes out on August the 14th, I think it is. So Spoiler, I didn't realize. We don't, we don't know a whole lot about the ghosts in Rycroft Manor too much yet, so what are maybe one or two of your most favorite characters of that group to bring out? Yeah, well, I think so. The, the head of the household, Aggie, uh, she's really cool. And at the beginning of issue two, you find out that, like, when she was alive was sort of at the era of um, history when, you know, silent movies were becoming talkies. And it's okay to kind of admit that, or it's okay to share that, you know, well, it's my book, so I can share whatever the heck I want. <laughs> um, but it's okay to share that basically, like, she uh, is divorced. And basically, she's, like, using her settlement money or her, you know, whatever her ex-husband is giving her, because he ghosts her, essentially, and the settlement is, like, his last message to her. And so she uses it to buy this apartment complex, which, even in that, those first three pages, you're kind of, like, Steven Universe level, like, dropped another nugget of, like, oh, like, in eight issues, you're going to find out, like, that that one sentence meant something. Um, But, like, the building itself already has a history by the time Aggie gets the building. Um, And so she's a really lovely character, and then... um, I'm really excited for people to just get to know, uh, I don't even think he's been name-checked yet in the first issue, but there's a ghost named Bernard, there's a ghost named Ricky, he's so sweet, he's like the little quiet one that like says something sort of like kind and endearing right as Daphne like decides to ask if she can stay there, and it's great, they all are just such fragile, beautiful people, and uh, I just can't wait to like, even though they're incorporeal, I can't wait to give them flesh. <laughs> so Ryan's going to do his crossover, is there a crossover that you have that you might want to do at some point I don't well you know what's funny is I get to live the best world with this book yeah I want to do a go-go no um, <laughs> no it's uh, what's great about it is that uh, we're going to be using like real locations real bands real personalities like there's a uh, in the second arc um, there, there's kind of this like 
big like all right show someone around LA sequence and uh, I think we're gonna actually get the, these characters to go to like a comedy show where like they're gonna get to see these comedians talk and I've already like gotten them to sign release forms and so I think it, that's the best kind of team up ever is like this fiction universe with like the real Los Angeles um, but yeah, maybe I'll ask Daphna for 2020 to do a go-go. Can I ask a question about this? Yeah. So, so with the the ghosts, are you going to learn, like, are you going to see flashbacks about who they were and how they got there and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. So are you going to do something similar to, like, like L.A. plays itself, where you get to see sort of L.A. changing at the same time as the characters a little bit? Oh, yeah. Well, because I was reading, I'm reading this book called Dear Los Angeles, and it's just, like, all postcards right and letters <laughs> about L.A., and... Um, there was like one thing that was like written in the 60s and someone was talking about Century City being developed and I was like oh right duh this like this whole city was like it's a reaction like LA was not planned like you know and uh, so like I have like this like little throwaway line about this curmudgeon character getting pissed off that um, the Century City development is going to cause all this traffic and it kind of alludes to why he just keeps uh, kind of putting himself further and further in his little hole and why he's going himself from the world because it's just building his like you know like if you can get your home life right you don't ever have to leave like you go to the grocery store you got your TV dinners but no yeah it's a LA is gonna it yeah it's a it's it's the history of LA is very important to awesome. some macro things cool. happening. Yeah, I'm having a blast. So before I let you guys go, I, I want to talk about the respective artists on your books because I feel like you both got with your with with both of your and you with Turtles as well. You've gotten really lucky with the artists that you've been able to work with. So tell, talk a little bit about Siobhan Senate and of course for you D Danielle um, Ryan. Yeah, with uh, well Siobhan Keenan, we worked uh, together on a gem in the holograms one shot for IDW, and I had met her when she was doing Clueless uh, here for Boom and she's just like the nicest and also like coolest person um, and amazing with deadlines and that's just such a hard thing to find in one individual so when Ghosted came up and, and I was very clear that I was like I'll draw sequences but I don't want to draw the whole book um, she was number one on my list and before I sent Shannon Waters my list I like messaged her and I was like hey like what's your calendar like can you do you know a 12 issue series and she was like yeah I'm around and so I was like here's my list by the way Siobhan's free um, <laughs> and she's just rad because she like like me I think she understands how like a set and how wardrobe and how demeanor can tell the reader so much about a character and a place and that's super important with a with a book that like you know is like 90% just like indoors you know with like a, a set cast so she's awesome and it's I don't know I love her so make sure you're going to boom-studios.com for all the release dates for all the great books Mighty Morphin Power Rangers of course Power Rangers Go and then of course you've got Ghosted in LA as well and Cena, Cena's got some other stuff so does Ryan's so make sure you just go to boom-studios.com because there's a ton of it up there Cena Grace Ryan Perry gentlemen thank you both for joining me at the same time thank, thank you. you very much man <laughs> one thing i really love about ghosted nelly not just the main character herself but just how fun it is and how quirky and, and interesting and then you've got the all these different ghost characters mixed in that have their own personalities and you're mixing this in in a way that i think a lot of different age groups can enjoy this not just the young adult and the teen age range but i mean i'm 40 years old and I love how fun this book is so make sure you're getting Ghosted in LA number three when it comes out on September the 11th at your local comic book shops also you can pick up issues one and two that are out 
right now as well. And don't forget to make sure you're reading the Ryan Parrott run for Power Rangers as well. And yes, I'll have more of this interview as we get closer to the release of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Power Rangers crossover. Ryan Parrott had some pretty interesting things to say about that as well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the folks at Boom Studios for letting me talk to Cinna Grace and Ryan Parrott at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Going to go back to the con next week and talk about Amazon Studios Undone. This is maybe the most beautiful-looking animated series that I've seen in a long time, but maybe it's not an animated series. We'll hear the one of the members of the cast, Rosa Salazar, and... The creators of the show are going to talk about that as well. So we'll talk about that next week. If you want more about any other shows that we've got going on or all kinds of stories, even a giveaway on our website right now, downandnerdypodcast.com. Also follow us on social media as well, facebook.com slash downandnerdy and at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.